Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right, welcome to Deconstructed. I'm Ryan Grimm. I'm joined here by Murtaza Hussein, my colleague at The Intercept and my co-author on a number of pieces about Pakistan and its collapsing democracy over the last couple of years. Maz and I are going to be joined by Munir Akram, who is the permanent UN representative uh, for Pakistan at the United Nations. He's been in that office uh, since 2019, so he actually straddled Imran Khan. Uh, who was, uh, you know, ousted with the encouragement of, of the U.S. State Department, leading to the current caretaker government ahead of upcoming elections. Murtaza, what do you think that uh, the ambassador wanted to do an interview with The Intercept? You know, that's a really good question. I was wondering that myself at first, but I think that a lot of it is due to the fact that uh, because The Intercept at this time has done this very critical reporting on Pakistan at a time where the Pakistani media has been more or less blocked or suppressed from doing it themselves, there's a considerable listenership and readership in Pakistan. And ultimately, The Intercept has a lot of credibility in that country, despite some criticism from the government or attempts to rebut our reporting in various ways. It's kind of undeniable, both in Pakistan and in the diaspora. Someone actually told me recently, they were at a wedding in Pakistan, they said that people were talking about Ryan Grimm, what's I was saying in this context, because... Yeah, it was very interesting to them that in the wake of one of our recent stories about Imran Khan. So I think ultimately, at some point, you have to recognize the fact that this is a media outlet which has a significant following in your country. And if you want to speak to people in your country and also in the diaspora, you have to engage with it in some sense. You can't ignore it as you would a purely Pakistani publication or to suppress it. Yeah, so I found the the conversation interesting. Uh, he seemed, you know, he's a diplomat and he's obviously, you know, good at his job, which is, you know, using diplomatic terminology. But there were some moments I thought, not to tease too much of the conversation, but I I thought there were some interesting uh, moments and some moments of moments of honesty, and maybe some things that the that the U.S. might even get upset about. What what was your takeaway from it? Yeah, I think you said it very well. Then when you're talking to diplomats, really, you have to read between the lines of their answers and here and there to see what's interesting. But And I think that what you do is you kind of tease out what's, uh, what's the most uh, consequential or important points of what they're saying. I think that in our context of a conversation with him, you know, he laid bare some of the fault lines, really, between the U.S.-Pakistan relationship at the moment and Pakistan's relationship with its neighbors, India and China, in Iran, which are becoming more and more fraught these days for many different reasons. I think that in Pakistan's case, it's very interesting because, you know, Pakistan is a very large country by population. It's about 240 million people. Well, it's the fifth biggest country in the world by population. And yet its diplomatic stature has decreased, uh, you know, year by year and decade by decade from a point where it once was relatively influential. And now its influence is decreasing precipitously particularly in relationship to India, which is a longtime rival, it's interesting to see from a diplomat how they navigate this or how they actually see Pakistan positioned 
now as year by year goes by when the country is sort of out of place. During the Cold War, it had a role with the U.S. Uh, during the War on Terror, again, found a way to make itself useful to the U.S. military and U.S. elites. But now Pakistan does not really have a country which is its patron, which is often something it's sought, nor does it have a clear geopolitical role where it fits in these conflicts. How diplomats navigate that and what they foresee as a role of Pakistan is very interesting because ultimately it's a very big country. It's very influential one way or another, positively or negatively. It's going to be influential just by its size. So the way he sees it and the way he sees the relationship has been fascinating. And again, I think the subtle cue is what he says where you see more consequential answers. Yeah, and we talked with him about you know why the U.S. may have encouraged the ouster of Imran Khan. We talked about the Pakistani arms sales uh, to the Ukrainians, which he said you know they don't officially acknowledge, but he suggested that uh, after our story came out, there may have been some conversations between the Pakistanis and the Americans about where those uh, weapons wound up, as if they didn't know. We talked about the Iranian strikes inside Pakistan, the Pakistani strikes inside Iran, and like you said, a lot about the relationship between Pakistan, the U.S., Pakistan, India, Pakistan, China. Um, so here is our interview with Ambassador Munir Akram. Mr. Ambassador, thank you so much for joining us here. We really appreciate it. My pleasure to be with you. There's a wide range of things we want to get to um, while, while we have you here, but the biggest issue right now here in the United States is the U.S. support for the Israeli war in Gaza. And Pakistan, among many other countries around the world, signed on to South Africa's case uh, before the International Court of Justice. I know that a number of countries received kind of private diplomatic pressure from the United States, either not to sign on to that application, those allegations, or uh, after they did so, received a, a, a call just gently asking, what the heck are you doing? Uh, so I'm curious, did you receive any pressure from the United States? Did Pakistan in general receive any pressure from the United States or any other country around the South Africa case? Uh, no. Uh, I mean, first of all, we have not joined formally in what is called the Declaration of Intervention in the case. We have expressed support for South Africa's action politically, but so far, legally, we have not joined the case in the ICJ. So uh, I, can t I can tell you, we have not received any calls yet. So in recent days, uh, Mr. Ambassador, there have been some reports about diplomatic maneuvering over the conflict involving some Arab nations with whom Pakistan has close ties, such as Saudi Arabia and Israel negotiating through interlocutors and through messaging publicly uh, to the extent that, you know, all the parties are seeking for seeking a resolution to the war on as quick terms as possible. And it's been floated that Saudi Arabia in particular may be amenable to recognizing Israel in exchange for a cessation of hostilities and creation of a Palestinian state. And obviously, there would be some uh, negotiations over the status of Gaza and who governs it and so forth. But the crux of the offer is that, that uh, Israel can achieve normalization in the region, which has been a long-sought goal for, for Israeli leaders, in exchange for statehood for the Palestinians, or as been described in the press, irrevocable steps taken by Israel that would create a pathway to a Palestinian state in the foreseeable future. Pakistan has not been mentioned anywhere in the context of these conversations. Pakistan obviously does not have ties with Israel, and since for many decades as a 
form of solidarity with the Palestinians in the Arab League has declined to have ties with Israel. If there were a situation whereby the Gulf Arab states, like Saudi Arabia, were to negotiate a normalization with Israel in exchange for a Palestinian state, would Pakistan also normalize its relations with Israel in that case if there were a Palestinian state created? Right. Uh, well, I think, first of all, this process of uh, either Saudi Arabia or other Arab states recognizing Israel in exchange for Israeli agreement to the establishment of a Palestinian state. This has been a long-standing position. It is not a recent development. as It has been portrayed uh, recently that diplomatic moves have been made. Secretary Blinken was in the region and conversations have taken place around this issue. But the Arab position on recognition has been long-standing, and I think since the Arab Peace Initiative was moved by the former king of Saudi Arabia. The, the question, of course, is at this time, how to get there, how to get to a stage where there will be, as you said, irrevocable steps taken towards the establishment of a Palestinian state. We are still far away from, from that. First of all, we have to get a ceasefire. We have to get humanitarian assistance to the Palestinians. Uh, we have to get the release of the hostages. These are the immediate steps that need to be taken. And we still do not have a clear part of how those steps are going to be taken. There is no agreement as yet in the Security Council for a ceasefire. Israel has rejected calls for a ceasefire, even to scale down the, the conflict. Uh, so I think there are, there, there are important steps that will have to be taken before we are at a stage where actual discussions can start on a two-state solution. And the first thing that you know as has to happen is the Israeli government has to agree that that is the end state that we are aiming for. And so far, there is no agreement from the Israeli government uh, on, on this issue. As far as Pakistan is concerned, uh, I believe that if the Arab world were to move towards recognition in the light or in the, in the context of the establishment of a Palestinian state, uh, I think a number of other Islamic countries, including Pakistan, but also Indonesia, Malaysia, other, other countries, will also, uh, I think, uh, join with the Arabs towards, towards that end state. But as I said, I think it is still too early we are not there yet. We don't even have the first step, which is the ceasefire in Gaza. And one of the areas that I cover here over in the U.S. government is in particular the, the State Department. And the State Department has been pretty vocal over the last uh, couple of months insisting that the upcoming elections in Pakistan need to be free and fair. That's the, that's the phrase they continue to use. They, they use that phrase as it applies to a lot of countries around, uh, around the world. We've also been seeing a lot of reports in the in the press here of uh, candidates who are filing for office getting arrested or abducted. Uh, we've seen the high court, I think, remove a symbol from one of the major competing parties. Obviously, the leading candidate for the PTI is, has been uh, disqualified. 
But separate from that, there there do seem to be a lot of pre-election irregularities that have gone against the opposition party. And I'm curious if you have heard from diplomats at the State Department about these issues or whether they're, they're saying it publicly, but privately they're not actually uh, raising these with you. I must tell you that, you know, I cover the United Nations and the issue of elections is not part of the responsibilities that I have to deal with. Uh, fortunately. Uh, so if any such interactions have happened, they probably may have happened with our, my counterpart in Washington uh, rather, than, rather than myself. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, a few months ago, The Intercept reported on a story uh, which dealt with Pakistan's foreign relations in the context of the ongoing uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict. And over the last year, Ukrainian officials have expressed various forms of appreciation for Pakistani support materially of their position vis-a-vis Russia. And that's those statements have been echoed by British officials and others. Uh, but there's been very little, you know, commentary directly by Pakistani officials about what forms of support that they are providing to Ukraine. The story that we published last year dealt specifically with uh, documentation of Pakistani arms sales brokered by the U.S. for the benefit of the Ukrainian war effort. This has so not been directly publicly acknowledged, but it's been hinted at, as I mentioned, very, very strongly by Ukrainian and British officials. Can you say anything a bit about you know what support Pakistan has provided to Ukraine or continues to provide, particularly now as the war enters a stage of attrition? Well, as you know, our position on the Ukraine conflict is one of neutrality. Uh, and therefore, we have not officially provided any uh, supplies to either side in this conflict. If some exports from Pakistan have been redirected, we are not officially aware of that. And our position remains that we will remain neutral in this conflict and that we will not support either side uh, as far as equipment defense uh, supplies are, are concerned. So that's that's our position. Have you uh, taken it up with the United States, maybe even perhaps after our reporting suggested that those exports were in fact being uh, routed uh, o- over to Ukraine? Is that something that the government took up with uh, its counterpart in the United States? Uh, I don't have direct knowledge of of that, but I would imagine that some conversations would have taken place after after your report. So obviously, uh, the Pakistani government's moving towards elections and is currently being led by a caretaker government. One of the major planks of Pakistani foreign policy from the inception of Pakistan has been the issue of Kashmir. Mm -hmm. And obviously, it's been a disputed issue between Pakistan and India for many, many years. But it seems that in recent years, the Indian government has taken uh, steps to take the Kashmir issue off the table of bilateral relations between the two countries. Uh, Most specifically, the revocation of Article 370 of the Indian Constitution, which granted Kashmir autonomy uh, within the Indian state. And now it seems the Indian government's moving forward with uh, plans to effectively, economically, and politically assimilate Kashmir 
and remove it from the realm of political disputation between Pakistan and India. The caretaker government has not taken any seeming overt steps on this subject, uh, at least in public, or nothing significant. I'm curious if Pakistan has any plans on how they plan to address the Kashmir issue going forward, given that it's been such a central part of Pakistani foreign policy for many, many decades. Right. So Pakistan's policy on Kashmir has not changed. Our position remains that the Kashmir uh, is a disputed territory, that uh, the Security Council has decided that the final disposition of the state of Jammu and Kashmir will be decided by the people of Jammu and Kashmir through a free and fair plebiscite held under the uh, auspices of the United Nations. That remains Pakistan's formal position. We do not, you know, the Security Council has also uh, legislated in two resolutions that any unilateral steps taken by any of the parties to the dispute to change the structure within Jammu and Kashmir will not constitute a final disposition of the state in accordance with the resolutions of the Security Council. And therefore, legally, internationally, uh, the unilateral steps which uh, the Modi government has taken in India to, uh, to change the status of uh, occupied Jammu and Kashmir, these are legally null and void as far as international law is concerned, as far as the United Nations is concerned. So our position remains what the Secretary General of the UN has expressed on the 8th of August 2019, after the Indian measures were taken on 5 August. And the Secretary General said that the, that the settlement of Jammu and Kashmir has to be in accordance with the UN Charter, the United Nations resolutions, and bilateral agreements between India and Pakistan. That remains our position. So we do not recognize what the Indians have done to change the status in occupied Kashmir. Our position remains that this is disputed territory and the Security Council resolutions must be implemented. A plebiscite must be held to resolve this issue. Uh, while India has taken these steps and it has been brutally imposed on the Kashmiri people, the fact of the matter is, no matter what is stated by the Indian government, the steps that have been taken have not been accepted by the Kashmiri people. Not even the chief ministers and political parties who were pro-Indian have accepted the change of status. And certainly the Hurriyat party, which is the party supporting a freedom of Kashmir, they have not accepted. Most of those leaders remain in, incarcerated uh, in jail or at under home arrest. Uh, the public is still under major restrictions on freedom of expression, association, freedom of religion. Uh, so these, these impositions by the uh, Indian government is not an indication that things have changed in Kashmir. The people of Kashmir have not yet accepted Indian occupation and Indian rule. And we believe that the freedom struggle will keep rising, will keep erupting until 
there is a solution which is acceptable to the people of Kashmir. You know, very quickly, it's interesting because this issue has been the source of several wars that were fought between India and Pakistan for a number of years, including ongoing diplomatic tensions between the two countries. Is it the case that Pakistan would not uh, move towards greater economic or political integration with India absent a solution to the Kashmir crisis? Or sorry, I should say the Kashmir dispute between India and Pakistan, because it seems from the Indian perspective, they have decided that the issue is no longer subject for bilateral relations and it's purely internal to them. And while Pakistan, as you mentioned, does not accept that position, it seems that India has developed a view that its relative power has grown uh, significantly over Pakistan over the last uh, two decades, I would say, such that Pakistan no longer has the ability to raise this issue effectively vis-a-vis its relations with India. So would the non-recognition or I'd say the non-resolution of the Kashmir issue to a status uh, meeting Pakistan's criteria, would that represent a barrier permanently to greater economic or political ties with India? Well, certainly, unless we have some sort of agreement on how to address the Kashmir issue. Uh, Some resolution which is acceptable to the Kashmiri people and to both India and Pakistan, this problem will remain a thorn in the side of both sides. And it will impede good relations between India and Pakistan. And we have said that time and time again, that the key to a stability, peace, and security in South Asia runs through Jammu and Kashmir, and the resolution of this dispute is imperative for good relations between India and Pakistan. So I I think that reality will not change. The reality that the Kashmiri people do not accept what India has done is annexation of Jammu and Kashmir, its unilateral steps, its uh, repression in Kashmir. Those are not accepted by the people of Jammu and Kashmir. And until that, that remains, it will remain a dispute. It will remain a problem. Uh, for the Indians and between India and Pakistan. And that is the reality of the relationship between the two countries. On that relationship, the the conventional wisdom here in, in Washington, kind of in the think tank world, is that the reason that the United States and the State Department were willing to support removal of Imran Khan for power and, and continue to kind of quietly kind of oppose his return uh, to power has to do with India and has to do also with China. They feel that you know, removing him is a way to kind of bring Pakistan and India closer together, uh, resolve uh, the tensions over the years, and through that kind of formation of a new uh, relationship, push back against the rise of China. Because uh, everything in, in the U.S. nowadays revolves around pushing back against China. Is that an accurate assessment, you think? I don't think so. You know, the the fact of the matter is that the Jammu and Kashmir dispute in Pakistan is a national issue. No government, whether it is Imran Khan or the People's Party or the Pakistan uh, Nawaz Sharif Muslim League, none of these parties, when in power, are able to 
capitulate on Kashmir, to concede uh, uh, to India's position on Jammu and Kashmir, to move away from our formal position on Jammu and Kashmir. It's a, it's a national position. And therefore, I don't think that that is any link between the position of Washington. I, I of course, do not subscribe to conspiracy theories. Uh, I believe that uh, Pakistan and the U.S. have uh, interstate relations, which have much broader canvas than just uh, the issue of Kashmir. But certainly, I do not believe that that, that, is, a, uh, that is something uh, that will change with any government that comes into power in Pakistan. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm interested in the sense that, uh, as Ryan mentioned, in D.C., there's great focus on containing China or emerging to confront what's seen by many in the U.S. as the threat of China, the rivalry of China, politically, economically, and maybe even militarily sometime in the future. Obviously, Pakistan is a country which has quite close relations with China. Uh, It's had for many, many decades one of the only really close military relationships China has with a foreign country really is with Pakistan, ironically. How does Pakistan see its own relationship in the context of a potential Cold War between the U.S. and China? Because obviously Pakistani leaders and elites have also had very close ties with the U.S. as well, too. If there's a situation where the conflict or the competition between China and the U.S., reaches a more acute stage, how may Pakistan position itself? And I guess I'll say one very particular question. It's a specific scenario which has been raised by some U.S. military planners that if there is a conflict one day between the U.S. and China regionally in in Asia, it could also involve India as well, too, as part of this alliance which has been created to contain China. Would Pakistan stay neutral in such a situation, or how would it navigate the fact that it has close relationship with China, but also seeks to stay on good terms with the U.S.? Yeah, so, you know, we we have had good relations with both China and the U.S., both uh, across the board, uh, economic, defense, uh, etc. And obviously we see this uh, rising competition between the U.S. and China uh, not very not very positively for our interests as such, uh, especially uh, since the strategic partnership between the U.S. and India is translated into the supply of major weapon systems, 
military su uh, support, uh, information and technology support, uh, which, by the way, is by and large deployed by India against Pakistan, not against China. Uh, all the weapon systems that have been acquired by India, what it is acquiring, the airplanes, missile systems, uh, and so forth, the submarines, they are all being deployed. Almost all, 70% of it is deployed against Pakistan as such. And therefore, we see this as a sort of direct impact on our security uh, that with this uh, supplies. And we have obviously been in discussions with the US, we have told them we want good relations, uh, but this is a security threat to Pakistan. And since we do not have access to any other sources to balance this armaments, this buildup by India, we have to rely on wherever we can get those defense systems. And that comes from friendly countries like China and, and other friends in the Islamic world, where we are able to mobilize and to be able to continue to have a, a credible deterrence against Indian aggression. Uh, so that is how we see it. Of course, there are various scenarios of what will happen uh, in the case of a confrontation between the US and China. My one assertion is, and I remain convinced, that India will never fight uh, with China on behalf of the United States. Uh, India, it may have its own differences with China, and they are resolving them, they are addressing them bilaterally, the talks are going on, on the line of control uh, in, in the Himalayas. Uh, but India has never uh, f stated and will not commit to joining the United States as an ally against China in a conflict, say over the South China Sea or over Taiwan. We are totally convinced India will never fight on the side of the United States against China as, as such. So I think those scenarios are very speculative. Uh, I think uh, India-China relations will remain on their own, as will Pakistan's relations with the United States will remain on a separate track uh, and I do not believe that uh, uh, that kind of calculation will come into play where the United States thinks that we are we are in China with China in the in the con context of a conflict. Uh, I think that's that's a far-fetched scenario as I see it. And we we hear a lot of concern here among kind of Pakistani Americans in in the United States uh, that. Uh, around the collapse of uh, democracy in Pakistan, around human human rights abuses that are underway, you have a lot of people putting it in in context of previous kind of explicit military regimes and arguing that things are even worse today uh, in Pakistan than they were under explicit military rule rather than what appears to be de facto uh, military rule. And I'm curious as a as a diplomat if that has been causing you problems at the United Nations. If the if these are issues that are uh, being brought to you as part of your day job, making it more difficult for you? Say when the if Supreme Court is, you know, if, if, you know, justices are resigning from the Supreme Court and then issuing rulings against the opposition party, things like that. Does that, does that cause you problems in your day job here in New York? Uh, not so far. 
uh, I must say. But you have to keep keep it in perspective, in the sense that at the United Nations there are 193 countries. Uh, many countries, a majority of countries, everybody has domestic problems, uh, some form of domestic issues that that they have, but. You know, the Charter of the United Nations is very, very clear. It does not allow interference in the internal affairs of states. So very largely, issues of internal concern are not overtly raised unless they become uncontrollable or they are a threat to peace and security if there are major, major conflict will arise out of, out of that. So uh, to answer your question, I have not faced uh, any any sort of difficulty uh, with regard to our domestic situation. Uh, our army chief was in New York just the other day. He had a very good meeting with the Secretary General of the United Nations, and we discussed all the foreign policy and security issues that face Pakistan very frankly and very in a very nice and friendly way with the Secretary General. Ambassador, in the last few weeks, there was a very interesting and unexpected exchange, military exchange between Iran and Pakistan, particularly in Balochistan, and uh, took many people by surprise because obviously, although Iran and Pakistan's relationships are not perfect, they have a relatively constructive and non-hostile relationship for the most part. Uh, Pakistan, Iran bombed Pakistan, a target inside Pakistan, which said was connected to a... Uh, terrorist group involved in terrorism inside Iran, and Pakistan retaliated by carrying out attacks inside uh, Iranian Balochistan as well, too. Thereafter, the two countries issued a statement saying that uh, they had amended their differences and were moving forward and restoring diplomatic ties, which had been briefly severed. Can you talk a bit about this exchange and what precipitated it? There were some indications in the press and reported, not confirmed, that Iran had given Pakistan forewarning of the attacks, but there was no specific clarity about that from the Pakistani side. I was curious what you know about this and whether Pakistan plans to continue to pursue this issue in international fora. Yeah. Well, as you know, both Iran and Pakistan face uh, terrorist uh, issues. Uh, in in their part of Balochistan and our part of Balochistan, as such, and there are groups uh, which uh, utilize the f- freedom of movement on, across certain ungoverned parts of the border between the two countries to cross back and forth, and I think this is the case uh, with both with the Jaish Adal, uh, which uh, obviously crosses back and forth. Uh, as well as with the Baluch insurgents, uh, which are the uh, Baluchistan Liberation Army, Baluchistan Liberation Front, uh, these are these are insurgent movements which also utilize the border to 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 escape from action by uh, either side. Uh, our, we were surprised by the the Iranian action. We were, there was no forewarning as such. Uh, but you know we uh, responded by taking the opportunity to hit 
some of the Baluchi insurgents are Baluchi insurgents uh, that had taken refuge across the border. Uh, but this is obviously uh, not the way that we would like to address the problem of terrorism that both countries face. And given the close relationship between the two countries, uh, we have now decided that both sides will cooperate and coordinate their actions uh, against such insurgents uh, if they happen to cross on the, on the other side. So we would like to put that uh, behind us and to continue our path of uh, close cooperation uh, with Iran to address the mutual problems of terrorism that both of us face uh, in this restive part of our two countries. And several years ago, there was credible reporting that uh, some of those uh, Baluchistan insurgents were actually uh, f funded and backed by the Mossad. Uh, this was evidence that uh, Iran had presented as well at some point. Uh, that that was a while ago, though. I'm curious, you know, from your perspective, if there are any, uh, if there's any, if you think that there might still be foreign support. Uh, for the insurgency either inside your borders against Iran or inside Iran's borders against them? Right. Well, I can't speak about the insurgency against the Iranians. I, I think they probably know the situation better. But I can say with, with confidence that the Baluch insurgents, the BLA and the BLF, are supported by India. They are financed by India. They take refuge in India. They take. They have supplies from India. They 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 go to India for their medical issues, uh, and there are clear links between India and these Baluch insurgent movements. Uh, whether there are other countries which support them, I'm not very clear. But some of these Baluch leaders, these insurgent leaders. Uh, are residing in some European countries uh, as such and seem to have safe, uh, safe havens in some places. So Pakistan certainly uh, believes that these insurgent movements have foreign support, especially Indian support, uh, and we have taken that issue up uh, with uh, all our interlocutors. And to that point of Indian support for separatism inside Pakistan, the Indian government has long alleged that Pakistan has provided overtly and covertly support to Kashmiri insurgents inside Kashmir, but also to Sikh insurgents inside Punjab. A few months ago, The Intercept also reported on some documentation showing that the raw or Indian intelligence had carried out assassinations of Sikh dissidents living in Lahore in the Punjabi uh, province of Pakistan. Can you speak a bit about Pakistan's dispensation regarding Punjab and the Sikh movement for Khalistan or independent Sikh state? What sort of relationship does Pakistan have with this movement? And what is Pakistan's view of this issue of Khalistan in general? Well, as you know, there was there was an active Sikh movement, uh, the Khalistani movement, back in the eighties, uh, and and the, there was a massive repression against the Sikhs in India post the assassination of uh, uh, Madame Indira Gandhi, as such. That insurgency was put down 
in the 90s by India. And uh, so far, it seems that there is no resurgence of that movement within India itself. So I, I think that the Khalistani movement is largely now a diaspora movement uh, centered both in Canada, United States, and uh, some other countries. But it is uh, what is shocking is that the Indians, despite the fact that there is no real uh, Khalistani movement, they have gone to the extent of actually planning as assassinations of people who are in the diaspora uh, in Canada and the United States uh, as such. It, it is an indication of the sense of uh, a uh, insecurity on the part of the Modi government, but also uh, it is an indication of the sense of impunity they feel that they have uh, within the Western world that they can get away with doing something so blatant in, in two friendly countries as such. You may have seen that we reported that uh, as well as the efforts that India uh, launched in Canada and the United States, there were also some assassination attempts in Pakistan itself. Uh, is that something that you're aware of? Is that something that you have raised with the Indian government? Well, uh, we, have, we have instances where uh, that some people have been assassinated. Uh, we have complete proof of Indian involvement in certain assassination attempts against the Kashmiri leaders, for example. Uh, there have been instances of people being assassinated on Pakistani soil. We presume it is the Indian intelligence which is behind it. Uh, but, of course, we, we do not have uh, an official uh, dialogue with India, but we have raised raised the issue with friendly countries about India's involvement in terrorism in in Pakistan. And this is not this is not the only. I mean, assassination is only part of what the Indians are doing against Pakistan. Their major campaign is the sponsorship of the TTP and the sponsorship of the Baluch insurgents to disrupt Pakistan. Uh, stability, to disrupt the China-Pakistan economic corridor, in, uh, especially in Baluchistan, uh, and, and to sow fear and terror uh, within our population uh, as such. So this is a, it is a well-planned, well-financed, organized campaign of sabotage and, and destabilization of Pakistan that India is conducting. You know, obviously, Pakistan has had uh, many different iterations and phases of its influence internationally. I think one of the high points probably was many years ago when Pakistan helped facilitate the rapprochement during the Cold War between the U.S. and China. And it still maintains relations with both those countries, which have now become respective superpowers. But it seems like in recent decades, Pakistan's influence diplomatically has declined. And particularly, it's been manifesting vis-a-vis -vis its relationship with India, where it seems that India has more of the upper hand and is courted internationally by uh, different alliances and uh, economically and politically by various parties, whereas Pakistan seems to be more neglected. Can you give your own perspective as someone who's a diplomat and seen this from the inside? What has been the source of Pakistan's seeming relative decline of status? And 
whether and if you see a possibility of a revival of that and how that may be accomplished? Well, I think you're right in the sense that uh, India has grown into a large economic market. Uh, India uh, has uh, also become uh, more powerful militarily. But the, the critical change that has taken place is the partnership between India and the United States. I think India draws a lot of its so-called influence because it is seen as a strategic partner of the United States. And it has a sense of impunity in many respects, in Kashmir, in the treatment of its Muslim population, uh, in this kind of assassination campaigns that it carries out, in the threats to Pakistan. All this is in manifestations of uh, Indian sense of impunity, its sense of power, its uh, sense that it can uh, adopt a very arrogant position vis-a-vis -vis its neighbors. But the critical difference, the change that has taken place is the strategic partnership between India and the United States, which has changed all the calculations. On the other side, of course, Pakistan has not kept pace economically. Uh, our economy has not done too well. We have structural difficulties with our economy. We have suffered in several ways uh, economic uh, setbacks, uh, and therefore we, we have been economically dependent, and that is a weakness, uh, and that has to be faced. How, how would Pakistan rectify this? Uh, the fact of the matter is that Pakistan is one of the most underinvested countries in the world. Uh, our resource, we have major resources, natural resources, human resources, uh, and the ability to catch up and to uh, accelerate our growth. We have to mobilize ourselves, to organize ourselves in a strategic way in order to be able to capture the opportunities that exist in Pakistan for economic and social development. Uh, but that, of course, requires peace and stability uh, and it re requires a concerted, consistent economic policy, which is what we are trying to do at the present moment, is to establish. And last, last quick question from me. One of the biggest international issues right now is, on the one hand, you have uh, Operation Prosperity Guardian, you know, being led by the United States, which is attempting uh, to stop the Houthis, the, the de facto Yemen government, from you know, blockading uh, shipping around the, the Red Sea. And then you have the blockade from the de facto Yemen government, where they say they're going to block shipping until Israel ends its assault uh, on Gaza. So does does Pakistan believe that uh, that the Houthis, you know, have the uh, have the right to carry out this this blockade? They they cite their uh, obligations under the Convention of, on the Prevention uh, of Genocide. And if not, why hasn't Pakistan joined in with the United States with Operation Prosperity Guardian? Well, I think that uh, what the Houthis are doing, at least in their declared statements, is to support the Palestinians in Gaza who are facing the Israeli in onslaught. I think uh, 
there is considerable public sympathy in Pakistan with the Palestinians and with the suffering that they have that they have had to suffer uh, under this Israeli military campaign. So I think that uh, uh, it uh, politically, I mean, I will not uh, delve into the legal uh, situation whether the Houthis are right or wrong, but politically, uh, our sympathies are with the Palestinians and the Houthis say that they are acting in support of the Palestinians. And therefore, I think Pakistan politically uh, would be well advised to keep away from taking sides uh, in this particular aspect of the conflict. Great. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Ambassador. Thank you, Van. Thanks, Mr. Ambassador. Thank you, Mr. That was Munir Akram, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of The Intercept. Jose Olivares is our lead producer. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. The show is mixed by William Stanton. Legal review by David Brelow and Elizabeth Sanchez. Leonardo Fireman transcribed this episode. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. And that was Murtaza Hussein, the co-host of Intercepted. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week and please go and leave us a rating or review it helps people find the show and obviously subscribe to intercept it as well if you want to give us additional feedback email us at podcast at theintercept.com or at ryan.grim at theintercept.com and put deconstructed in the subject line please otherwise we might miss your message i'll see you soon When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.